Hi, thank you for joining us today. I'm Ellen Lust with the Program on Governance and Local Development at the University of Gothenburg. And today with me is Jon Pierre from our Department in Political Science at the University of Gothenburg as well. Um, and today I wanted to discuss what had been an article but became a book, The Politics of Urban Governance, um, that you wrote a little while ago, but I think it has some really interesting insights, particularly as we think about governance both in the sort of the West, if we, if we will, um, but also in developing worlds where there's a lot of attention paid to decentralization and expectations about how governance can be changed. Um, so I, I found your, your work really fascinating because you provide these kind of four models of, of governance itself, a managerial model, um, welfare model, of a, a sort of a question of corporatism and a pro-growth model. And I wanted you to start by just explaining a little bit to, to everyone what those models look like. Mm -hmm. uh, well, thanks for having me, uh, first of all. Um, my interest in, in doing this text came from the fact that I was as I was reading up on, on the urban governance books and articles, I was struck by the fact that there was so little attention paid to what people and organizations that were involved in governance, what they actually wanted to achieve, and that the configuration of governance would vary according to the objectives mm -hmm. of, of that sort of a collective effort. And so I thought that, uh, as I looked around, I can see that, I mean, different cities have different goals and objectives and they have different strategies for that and so I began to say that well assuming that your goal is X then you will choose partners in governance that will help you achieve that goal and if you have another goal then you will probably team up with some other actors and so I, I, I began to sort of crystallize these four different models um, I guess the first model I was looking at was so-called pro-growth governance which is I guess to too much of the American context. I guess that is probably a, almost a sort of a default setting that we all assume that this is what urban governance is all about. This is what urban politics is all about. There was an American sociologist called Harvey Molloch, which mm -hmm. wrote uh, a, a really really great piece back in I think the oh sixties or seventies called "Cities as Growth Machines," uh, which became a bit of a standard reference, saying that all cities, whether they like it or not, whether they confess it or not, they're all obsessed with economic growth. And this is largely because all actors in, in the local society have a stake in growth. Mm -hmm. uh, even the most sort of hardcore cultural workers, artists, actors, people who usually make huge efforts to distance themselves from economic development, saying that they're above that, or they're beyond that, they're bigger than that, uh, they too have a stake in economic growth. And so that was his thesis, that it's very hard to find people who are really serious about opposing economic growth. And so this becomes the sort of hegemonic goal. So that was my first theme. The second theme was more of a managerial theme. Uh, and there I was inspired in part by new public management with its emphasis on empowering managers. By doing that, also sidelining both elected officials, but also the wider sort of populace in, in the mm -hmm. city, that they should basically just put their, put their fates in the hands of the city manager and everything would be fine. This was also inspired by the idea of so-called public value, which is, which is a, a, I had a colleague who once referred to it as the biggest and reddest herring of them all. <laughs> uh, and he said that th there's, there's something about public value which is, it's, it's endemic to Australia. You know, like so, some bird species, there are also public value theory, which is said to be, it only exists. Well, Harvard, the Kennedy School of Government, they talk a bit about it. 
but most Australians love it. And I've been trying to figure out exactly what it means. And I think what it boils down to is that senior public officials, non-elected officials like city managers in producing services, they, they, they somehow generate what they like to call public value. And so these two, the, the, the new public management theory and the public value model, both of them assign uh, city managers uh, an overwhelming significance in sort of promoting the well-being of citizens. It's a distinct sort of depoliticization. They sideline the elected officials, they sideline, they are sort of, it, it, it's a very sort of non-participatory model. Do they also effectively sideline sort of business, which seems to be a kind of a key partner in the pro-growth model? Or are they? I guess in a way, I guess in a way they both do that. Yeah. Uh, they are certainly there in the background, but they're they're not. They're, they're not who counts essentially. No, yeah. no, no, exactly. Uh, the third model, corporatist governance, I think has probably a bit of a more uh, a more European flavor to it. A strong presence of organized interests of a big variety. Many, of course, would be there sort of conventional unions, but there would also be a lot of other associations and, and, and sort of acting collectively through organized in, interest is, I mean, it, it certainly exists in the U.S., but it's much more developed in Europe. And so I thought that what you often see is that while we think of, while we often think of corporatism as a national model of, of, of governance, it is also quite prominent in, in many, many cities with a strong sort of labor legacy. Right. Uh, primarily, and what you find is that these these organized interests have a way of sort of disaggregating the polity, and they they actually strive for that to some extent because they they are they are there first and foremost to promote the interests of of the members of their respective organization, and to also I guess to defend the model of governance as such, but they do not cater very much to the wider public interest. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth model would be uh, w- would be welfare governance. And I was impressed by a text by Desmond King and, oh, Ted Gurr, okay. uh, called uh, The State and the City. And they, they talk about cities in the backwaters of capitalism, uh, cities that were sort of left behind, you know, declining steel cities, for instance, or declining cities in the, the sort of textile industry, you know, where nothing much has happened. You know, the big companies have sort of moved out. No one else has sort of moved in. Uh, the demographics are gradually, you know, killing these small towns, and the only, the only revenue available for the people living there uh, are the welfare checks. And so, how do you organize governance in these harsh mm-hmm. <laughs> contexts? You know, how do how do how do people behave? At w- w- what becomes their mind frame? Well, they will take a very hostile view towards investment because they basically they have learned the hard way that. You shouldn't trust corporations yes. because they can, they can, they can talk a lot about you know we're here for the long haul, but you know that in reality often they're not. They will go where they can make a profit, and so there's a hostility towards economic actors, but also to political actors. They they're basically people who feel betrayed, mm-hmm. and sort of abandoned, and forgotten. So here were my four models, and then I just started sort of playing with them, and that that produced the article, and then I had a. I had a commissioning editor for uh, for an academic publisher who never gave up on his dream that this <laughs> that this should be a book, and eventually and he got it. Eventually, he got it. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Actually, what I found really fascinating was, in some ways, the way the the extent to which 
what we think of as kind of democratic governance is almost absent across the board, right? I mean, it's not really, mm. I mean, in the welfare, the mm. model, the real sort of looking is towards the state, right? I mean, it's about how can the, you know, how can the city relate to the state in order to sort of manage governance at that time, if I understand yes. it, yes. that correctly, right? Yeah. You know, the corporatist model strikes me as maybe the closest to that, right? The managerial model is essentially kind of divorced from participatory politics and sort of democracy mm. with a kind of little D mm. and, and, mm. and even the, you know, kind of even if we think about the pro-growth model, you know, there are sort of very clear actors. But in many ways, I mean, what what's been a kind of a long-term concern about that orientation has mm. been the extent to which it doesn't necessarily care about you know, kind of the people as a whole, mm -hmm. right? Only mm -hmm. to the extent to which they might be lifted if the waters lift, but not necessarily yes. about catering to their interests and certainly not their immediate demands, right? And a lot of times mm -hmm. the idea is to actually kind of sideline them in order to get the, you know, the projects through, et cetera. Well, yeah, and I agree. And, and, and that was my in initial thought on these issues as, as well, that, that they're all, that they're all sort of fairly distinctly sort of non-participatory. And then, then I just realized that, well, they are. Uh, in the conventional sense of it. But managerial governance is participatory in the sense that it, it sort of redefines citizens into, in, into customers. Yeah. Yeah. A corporatist governance redefines participation into you know, organizational membership. Right. So, so, so there is participation, but not in the sort of conventional sense that here is a broad public and we need to find institutional mechanism by which we can link this public to the governing in institution. I guess that each model has its own take on how it defines participation. True. I guess the, the question is, is it, I mean, there's a participation and there's almost an exclusion at the same time, right? But, so, and, yeah, and that's, yeah. and that's, I think, what is really, really particularly interesting if, I mean, that my work is, tends to be on the developing world where, mm -hmm. you know, the idea about governance is about, oh, I mean, the sort of leap motif about let's just increase participation and it will all be fine, right? And I think that's right. a, you know, it's 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 interesting to reflect on these models in that kind of context. It know? is, it is, and uh, I'd be happy to confess that this was not a main concern. I, I didn't, right. I I didn't think too much about those issues when I wrote the paper or even when I wrote the book, and it's just dawned on me later that, in a way, the argument here is comes across, and I think rightly so, as fairly elitist. Because it doesn't really deal Think about with the people. linking yeah. people in, yeah. into governments, but more how do how do various sort of actors, various different sort of components of the urban elite, how do they relate to each other, and they relate to each other in say four different ways. But but what about the mass? You know, I mean, what about the average citizen in these cities? How what are their avenues to power? Yeah, uh, yeah I don't ask myself that. No, that is an absolutely fair yeah. point. I also think it was interesting to, to think about, you know, the extent to which competition matters. And again, this is something sort of, sort of if we're, you know, and you said in the managerial style, the, you know, the citizen is essentially the client, right? And of course, that's another sort of this notion about choice of schools and sort of kind of the entire sort of triangular model that in, in the development world that mm. the WDR 2004 put out, you know, is an idea that people have choice, right? And you know, so we can have a sort of a choice style and a client style of, of governance mm. that makes sense as long as there's two schools to go to, right? <laughs> as long as there's, you know, oh, yeah. two, and two clinics to sort of to, to attend. It's when you get to the positions where there's actually not, right, mm -hmm. that, it, that it really in some, some ways kind of falls, you know, falls apart. Right, you know, right. So. Well, I mean, I mean, choice 
choice is fundamental not only to managerialism but to I mean to any model of, of democracy. I mean I, I mean there has to be choice yeah. for yeah. the system to work. And if there's only if there's only one one show in town, then that is not real democracy, is it? And by the same token, if the significance of elected officials in the system is very, very low, as we see in managerial governments, uh, again, to me, that also begs the question about how, how democratically sustainable mm. is this system, really? I mean, if, if we're dissatisfied with the way a particular manager and his team and her team work, um, I mean, what do we do? I mean, how do we get them out of office? The whole idea is that if we're dissatisfied with the city leadership, then we can vote them out of office. But but what about these <laughs> managers? Right. I mean, who are not necessarily movable and sometimes no. have more kind of political ballast or, yes, or weight. Yes, than, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's, you know, in the flip side of that is, is to say to what extent then we should we expect democracy to be the sort of the solution to governance ills, right? I mean, so, mm. I mean, you know, and you make the, I think, a very nice point, which I totally agree with, right, that, you know, governance and government are not the same, right? And the, the empirical question is how much is governance really being done by government, right? So, yes. And I think that's, that's important to keep in mind. So we can... You know, the, the extent to which people want to pin hopes about improving sort of local governance or urban governance mm. on, you know, more democracy or better democratic systems is also, I think, it's worth drawing that into question, right? I mean, if, if so much of actual real urban governance is not necessarily, you know, kind of tied to citizens and a sort of basic yeah. public choice model, mm -hmm. then do we really need to think that that's, you know, sort of more democracy is the solution to... To urban governance. No, no, that is an absolutely fair point. Uh, and I, I think, I mean, isn't that what we see? Uh, I mean, that there's a growing number of scholars now uh, saying something quite similar to yeah, that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I saw this wonderful TED talk by Danbisa Moyo mm. uh, some time ago now, where she makes a very powerful argument that what I mean, what she calls in emerging markets and what we would call developing countries yeah. uh, uh, are looking more and more critically to the whole idea of, sort of the d democracy as the panacea for right. all the problems that they have. And instead, uh, they say that, well, I mean, democracy is all good and well, but first of all, there are much more urgent material needs. Exactly. And then they look at they look at China, typically, and they would say that, well, look at, look at the sort of unparalleled economic development that we see there without democracy. So uh, maybe the whole the Western idea that as soon as you democratize and as soon as you, you know, you, you boost participation and involvement in urban affairs, uh, economic development will sort of follow suit. And I think more and more people are in the development countries are now. But I guess this is this is probably where your research comes in. Uh, sort of question that whole hypothesis and say that no, that that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Um, so again, I mean, it's it's. Um, I mean, p participation by any sort of democratic model is absolutely key. But there are also instances, and I'm asking, I guess I'm shooting this question back to you now. <laughs> be careful what I ask, <laughs> yeah, right? Yes. I mean, could there be too much participation in, in developing countries where you basically, you, you overload the political system with demands and expectations, yeah. and when the system then cannot deliver on that, uh, that may undercut the whole legitimacy of a state. 
Actually, I mean, you know, in a sense, that's Huntington's sort of, well, thesis, right? About, yeah. you know, in participation sort of exceeding and sort of proceeding at a faster pace than institutionalization, right? Yeah, and the yeah, idea yeah. that that, that undermines the state. I think a lot of us also would question, you know, again, looking at places where participation has been, you know, and I think it's declining, but has been such a notion for development programs have, you know, the extent to which that taxes people. I mean, you know, how many of us, you know, mm. sitting in Gothenburg mm. have the time to go to the health committee meeting and the, you know, PTA <laughs> meeting, and like all of the meetings that everybody wants them to go to in yeah. order to get something done or to make decisions, right? So, I mean, it sounds great in the abstract, but then, you know, sort of on the ground, it may not necessarily always be the the, the case. Yeah. yeah. Or or if if as some people say that um, there was a great book called Stealth Democracy mm-hmm. published in, I guess ten fifteen years ago now, basically making the argument that people by and large don't care too much about democracy yeah. or participation or involvement. They'd rather have uh, food. They'd they'd much yeah. rather have food. Uh, and they'd much rather stay at home and watch TV or hang out with the kids or go to a football game or whatever. Yeah. But participation in the democratic process is not a top priority. But at the same time, uh, when things turn bad for whatever reason, you know, anything from a you know, natural disaster to, to some sort of unrest uh, in the local society, they do expect the government to be there and to be very powerful and to be well equipped and very resourceful and to be able to sort of meet that challenge immediately so it, it's a very very sort of uh, I don't know it's a very inconsistent set of expectations that we have on government yeah and in a sense on ourselves right but, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and and on ourselves yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the when things get bad or, or put differently mm-hmm. the contextual kind of changes that you know, and how that might fit with the governance models and I thought you made an interesting point that you know, essentially kind of corporatist models are not very well aimed at dealing with times when we see economic downturns, right? Every interest group wants to, to you know, kind of ride on the upswing, but actually when things, you know, when things get bad, it's yeah. hard to make people decide that they really want to take a pay cut or they really want to you know, sort of have fiscal yeah. constraints, right? And so I just wanted to, to have you talk a little bit about what you see as the most important kind of contextual drivers and how those you know, kind of match or fit better and worse with the different models. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I'm going to bother you to think about the current, the current global context and yeah. what, that, what that means. Yeah, well, if I ever were to do a second edition of the book, uh, I mean, what kind of material would I add? Uh, I would probably, I mean, I mean, one thing that I noticed, you know, and I was actually looking quickly through the book just the other day, you know, getting prepared for this talk here, and I realized that I, 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 I'm very, very silent on any issues related to the environment uh, or gender-related issues uh, or even migration. I mean, many of, of the issues that are now you know, atop of the, of the, the agenda, ad- yeah. ad- agenda, I mean, locally as well as nationally and globally, uh, and I just, uh, I, 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 I tip my hat at, at those, yeah, there they are, and they're really big and scary and everything, but, but uh, I'm not going to concern myself too much with that right now, because I have these other issues here that, that I want to get sorted out first. Uh, and I think that is a major omission. So I think it's, I, and it, 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 it's a very perceptive point there, Ellen, because I think it is more, it is more narrow in time, so to speak, the time frame within which this model is relevant is probably tighter than, than we think. It is mm-hmm. not a timeless model 
in 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 any respect i think if anything it would be the typical i don't know i guess post-war western urban societies uh and as we now head into i guess partly a new era a more sort of postmodern era there are issues now making their way up the agenda that that are not covered in, in this book uh, but uh, if, if we think though i'm sorry if we think about something like say the environment and mm -hmm. the extent to which you know the different models might be kind of better or worse place to deal with those sets of issues mm. are there you know, would we say well the welfare model would actually do better than the managerial or, or I mean is there a way to think through you know how these different models or or is it the idea that there's just different actors and suddenly they would actually create an entirely different you know kind of the fifth model of governance well yeah um, <sighs> I guess I guess one way to look at this would, would to to depart from the observation that that cities are still very much pit in fierce competition with each each okay. other, yeah. and while previously they were mainly competing for, I mean, investment was was you know the big sort of competitive topic. We need to get major investments here. What we see now, I think, is that cities are increasingly often competing about skilled labor. Uh, and and the interesting thing about skilled labor is that they tend to I did a book back in the 90s about that uh, and I, I was trying to figure out exactly how how Swedish cities saw this pattern and, and I just went out and I, I did I ran surveys and I interviewed so many people about this and I said so these people that you want to at attract to come and live in the city uh, what are they what are they asking for what do mm -hmm. they want? What would sort of tip the balance in, in your favor? And the answer I got, uh, both in sort of numerical terms through the service, but also through interviews, was that it covers the entire range of the, of, of, of the services provided by the city. It goes anything from leisure time activities for the kids, mm -hmm. uh, a good environment. Green uh, spaces. Uh, green yeah. spaces where you can go hiking or have picnics yeah. or, or just go out camping or sort of proximity to nature. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, cultural spending, you know, if you want to go watch a play or something or listen to a concert or something like that, they should also be provided. So it was the entire range of services provided by the city that would be considered important and relevant for these uh, these at attractive, high-skilled labor to come to the city and to move permanently to the city. So I was thinking about city where I'm, I've I've spent some time uh, Pittsburgh uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the US which of course has its background as the sort of steel capital of the world back in the early post-war years then came the 80s where the steel mills all moved out mm -hmm. and the the 90s was a very sort of traumatic very sort of nervous kind of decade exactly. and now it's becoming uh, one of the greenest city in the country and uh, they're sort of reclaiming um, the waterfronts along the rivers, uh, and there are biking paths, and and and, and it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole different city. I mean, I I try to go there every so often, and if I'm if I haven't been there for several years, I can I mean I can very clearly see the changes wow. that are happening there. So Pittsburgh is now I mean one of the main sort of medical centers in in the U.S. and a big sort of transplantation center and and and, and so on and so forth. So it's um, uh, when you when you when you lose the competition in one area, you, you can still sort of reinvent yourself right. 
and and update yourself and and provide an urban environment that is attractive to the people who are who you are now competing for. It occurs to me if we're thinking about attracting people, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously cities would like to attract, you know, skilled labor and professional classes and those who can sort of contribute, right? Mm -hmm. um, who they tend to be attracting right now are actually refugees and migrants and those who are not necessarily yeah. at least immediately equipped, right, mm -hmm. to, to contribute. That doesn't necessarily mean at all that, you know, that people are not skilled and that they don't have talents that can be brought in. The question, I think, is how do, how do cities take advantage of you know, refugees, or how do they take advantage yeah. of, of the people who are coming these days mm. um, to to also kind of bolster the, basically kind of the whole. Mm. Um, well, I mean, isn't that the $64 million dollar question? Yes. yes. Uh, I mean, how do you do that? But uh, I thought it'd be fun to ask you that. So. Well, thank you, Ella, for that. If, if you look back over the years, if you look at, I mean, previous sort of waves of migration like the wave that we experience these days isn't the standard answer here that how do you do this well you do it over time uh it is it is fascinating just to watch that and i mean when we had you know initial waves of people coming to sweden back in say the 60s or 70s they would come from finland they would come from poland they were just looking for jobs and they were actually recruited actively recruited to come here uh, they were absorbed very, very easily, and they did leave an imprint on, on the cities where they lived. So you you would see new restaurants coming up, you would see new shops coming up, you would see the whole sort of eth ethnographics of the city would change. Uh, and then we had the 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 nineties uh, with the Balkan Wars, and, mm -hmm. and and there was another wave coming here, and again the same thing happened. I mean, there there, were, there was short term major problems. But they were accommodated over time, and again, you can see that there was another imprint on on the sort of face of the city and the image of, of the city, how it how it, how it how it changed. So my theory is that this will happen this time too over time, but people have to be patient and and uh, just calling out saying that this is a, a disaster would be missing that point altogether. That's a great uplifting note to end on. <laughs> No, and I really, I mean, I just find this incredibly, like I said, I find it very fascinating, I, and particularly because I think it not only helps us to think through the different you know, different sort of governance styles, right, within mm -hmm. the urban areas, and to, to really think about, you know, how even in the West, where, okay, participation in strong institutions and these types of, yeah. you know, kind of mechanisms exist, you know, to what extent do they actually play a role in governance and how should we think about these actors and you make the point of sort of cultural and kind of practices and processes. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, you know, frankly, really interesting for thinking about, you know, Europe and the U.S. and elsewhere, but also really interesting for thinking about places where, you know, the whole notion of trying to create those institutions um, is yeah. still very much at the forefront. Mm -hmm. so. Good. so thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.